I've always run away from things that tie me down. My life I love, but love's not for me. Hello, hello, hello out in Netcast land. I am Rod O'Reilly. And I'm Mark Merlino. And we are collectively known as Two Two Old old Furry furry Fans. Welcome back once again to our little uh, semi-irregular trip through the history of furry fans through the lens of our own two rather strange lives. Once again, thanks to our buddy Changa Lion for helping us get all this online, and thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, We've been getting more listeners each time, thanks to uh, our podcast site itself and to uh, YouTube. So uh, for any of you who are around for the first time, listen to the other ones first and then uh, come along here. We're happy to have you along with us. Getting right into it, uh, in our last mega-length two-parter, as you may recall, we were plowing along through the end of the 70s. I was just getting into high school in uh, the beautiful year of 1979 in the beautiful city of Fountain Valley, California, Go Barons. And uh, Sai, you were uh, already ensconced in fandom and getting busy with starting up the uh, Cartoon Fantasy Organization. But along comes 1979, which uh, you informed me was a rather important fanish year all around. Yes, um, I've been doing a little research prior to this because, you know, you get old, you forget things. I have no idea what you're talking about, young man. And... Rodney had mentioned that uh, 79, of course, actually it was February of 79, was the broadcast of the Winter Games of Animal Olympics. Oh my gosh, does it go back that far? Yes, I think it does. Yeah. Wow. Basically, that was when they had the Winter Games the prior winter to the Summer Games. They don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. But that's when they did that. Wow. And uh, for those who don't remember the show, what it was is that Stephen Lisberger, who people remember for Tron. Director thereof. The director and also basically the creator of Tron. Yep. You know, it was Disney production, but it was his baby. Right. He, the first thing he got involved in with television was he did a... Short subject for uh, a pre-Olympic film competition that was sponsored by the National Endowment of the Arts. Mm -hmm. And he did a little thing about what if the animal kingdom had its own Olympics and they were anthro animals. Boy, I bet it would be gold to find that these days. (laughs) And he actually, it actually won. It got enough interest that he was approached by... Um, ABC, I believe it was ABC, who had won the contract to do all of the Olympic coverage. No, that was NBC. Pardon me, NBC. NBC, I'm sorry. It was NBC. And they commissioned him to do two television specials. Well, I think, uh, as I recall, first, before that, they, they, they got, he actually had to talk them into the TV specials. He first was commissioned to do bumpers, the, the, you know, here comes bobsledding, here comes... Right, right. Yeah, and all he that. Was doing, right, he was doing animated bumpers, very much like using backlit animation. Mm-hmm. So it looked like it was computer, but it wasn't. Exactly. And uh, he said, well, since you've hired me for that, I've got this idea for these specials, dot, dot, dot. 
Yeah, well, of course, I think having the short subject as an example probably helped a lot. Mm-hmm. So he was going to do two specials. One would be a television half hour, which was 22 minutes, and a television hour, which was 44 minutes. Right. Winter games and summer games. Mm-hmm. The Winter Games actually got broadcast, as planned, Mm -hmm. on NBC. Yep. 7.30 p.m. At the time, I had my V-Cord 2 uh, VCR, which is a Sanyo uh, VCR. It's not Betamax. It's not VHS. It was another format entirely. The cartridges had half-inch tape, but looked like 8-track cartridges. I had been going to buy a Betamax... VHS had just started to show up on the scene. They came out a year later. But I went to a sort of Ampro video store. They had a wide selection of VCRs, including three-quarter inch pneumatic, you know, broadcast stuff. Mm-hmm. And they had some VCord 2 models that weren't in the home package, but were actually put together for educational or industrial use. Yeah, the machine was rather small compared to a lot of the machines of that time. It didn't even have a tuner. Wow. Or a timer. Wow. So essentially, though, one thing it could do, which Betamax could not, is it could do rock steady still frames mm. and slow motion. Ooh. And of course, I was into animation. And my intention was to record everything animated I get my hands on. Mm-hmm. What I ended up doing is I got a Sony tuner timer for a U-Matic machine, which had the 20-pin connector on the back that plugged right into their U-Matic machines and plugged right into the V-Cord. So that's how I got my tuner timer. Got it. This was set up in our family room at the house. Mm-hmm. And next to this weird couch we had we had out of a door that was hanging on chains from the rafters. <laughs> I remember that. Something I came up with. And I had my old projection TV out there, which was just a television screen with a lens on it and uh, a metallic curved screen. And I saw the announcement in TV Guide, and I set out to record the Winter Games of Animal Olympics, which I did very carefully, editing out the commercials using the still frame button. Mm-hmm. And that became my pride and joy. Now, of course, we were eagerly awaiting the Summer Games, but it never happened. Quick side note here, because um, you make me, me think of it. Um, a personal experience with Animal Olympics... Um, again, for those who don't know, um, late uh, 1970s, uh, 78, 79, was when uh, an interesting little Canadian company called Nelvana got started up. And they uh, started putting out on NBC these half-hour animated specials right before primetime, uh, the first of which is of particular furry interest. It was called The Devil and Daniel Mouse which was, of course, the devil and Daniel Webster done with uh, anthropomorphic animals. And it was pretty darn cool. Um, And then they did a couple of others leading up to that, like uh, 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 Romeo and Juliet and a few others like that. And what I thought was interesting was there were several of these in a row. And then at the end of that, 
along came Animal Olympics. So I saw the announcement for it, and I thought that Animal Olympics was another Nelvana special. That's interesting. Yeah, because it was it was just, you know, it was blah, 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 all these Nelvana specials, and then along comes Animal Olympics in the exact same slot like a week later. So I thought, you know, okay, another Nelvana special, cool. And then I sat down and I watched it, and I'm like, no, this isn't. <laughs> I think I actually had a recording of Devil and Daniel Mouse. It's interesting, they later made a feature mm-hmm. using the same plot. Virtually, yes. Which was also furry, mm-hmm. kind of. Yes. And that was uh, rock and roll. Exactly. That was their big uh, their big attempt to go plowing into the uh, feature market, which unfortunately did not turn out rather well. And we'll get around to that eventually. But uh, eventually they uh, started making their money doing a lot of animation for other people. And they also became very famous for a uh, series they created called The Raccoons. Right. Which was, needless to say, tremendously furry. And, uh, yeah, Nelvana's become quite a quite a furry thing over the years. But anyway, Lisberger came out of nowhere with this surprise thing, uh, Animal Olympics. I saw it on NBC and said, wow, this is amazing. And uh, But as you were saying, he was going to show the summer games on NBC. And then... Yes, basically, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan... And the United States said, we're not going to come to the Moscow Olympics. We're boycotting it. And so that meant all the television stuff got canceled, including the Summer Games of Animal Olympics. Whether or not they actually had to or not, they used it as an excuse not to. And also, unfortunately, they used it as an excuse, they being NBC, used it as an excuse to not pay for the stuff that they had commissioned. It's worth it to look up the credits on Animal Olympics, which you can probably do if you... It's on YouTube in several places. And international... Pardon me, Internet uh, Movie Database, imdb.com, one of my favorites. Yeah, you'll find that there are a lot of names on the credits that became really well-known animators at Disney... Brad Bird is on there, too. Roger Allers. Yep. Uh, Billy Crystal did a voice. Gilda Radner did a voice. And this amazing person named Michael Fremer co-wrote the entire series, mm-hmm. was the music editor and helped compose the music and was all the other voices, pretty much. Virtually, yes. He was like 75% of the voices there. The other voice actor was Harry Shearer. Uh, We met Michael Fremer recently uh, and uh, got him to uh, give a little talk in front of an Animal Olympic screening at a... uh at a meeting of Califer, which was totally awesome. And uh, he, he said, for one thing, he was the guy who came up with all of the weird animal pun names for characters. He named virtually every character in it. Right, and the reason there was a Kawada Monday as one of the characters in it, which isn't your typical species, mm-hmm. was he happened to have one as a pet at the time. Exactly. Well, that's one of the things that absolutely jumped out at me and I think a lot of other proto-furry fans who got hooked on Animal Olympics is, yeah, you, you know, you say an animal world, um, it was literally an all-animal world. I mean, there were species in there that, you know, had speaking roles that you've never seen anywhere. I mean, they had a— Certainly f- not an American show. Exactly. They had a flamingo character. They had an otter who talks. They had—where other else ever, since before or since, have you seen a Russian sable as a character? That's a Russian mustelid who's kind of like a Martin, for those of you who don't know and are keeping track. Yes. 
Now, I don't know, do we go into the CFO now or not? Well, let's, let, let's, let's, let's hang with uh, uh, Animal Olympics since we're, 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 we're talking a yes, little bit about that. Yes, but of course, the CFO and Animal Olympics go hand in hand. Really? Why is that, Cy? Because what exactly, what happened is that Steven Lisberger, not to be out, not to be left in the cold, decided to produce an animated feature by combining the winter and summer games. Yes. If you've ever seen it, you can. It's out there these days. It, the winter and summer games were put together kind of to my eye, kind of haphazard. Um, the, you're, you're, you're going along through the summer games and then you'll suddenly jump to a winter game thing and then back again, and it doesn't necessarily make sense. And, of course, all of the outside stuff, the intro and outro of the winter games, vanished because they didn't make sense anymore. Yeah, well, basically, I think it was supposed to be like a highlights reel of the games. But the idea was they went all out mm-hmm. on producing this thing. Right. It was one of the first movies to have Dolby stereo sound. Ooh. Ever. Wow. Thanks to Mr. Fremer. Right. And it got really good reviews when he rolled it out for the uh, distribution groups. Yep. He showed it at a film festival. And In Miami. Uh, unfortunately, nobody picked it up. Right. So it ended up being relegated to cable television and subscription television. For those who don't know what that is, that was kind of a cable TV for places that didn't have cable TV. It was basically broadcast on the UHF band, but it was scrambled so you couldn't watch it or couldn't hear it unless you had a special box that you paid a monthly fee for. Hmm. This is pretty much, this is gone. And uh, for the uh, nerds out there, yes, people were making their own homebrew decoder boxes <laughs> and a very useful integrated circuit, phase lock loop chip, which was used in lots of projects, not just, you know, making illegal decoder boxes. <laughs> which we didn't do, folks. Was actually pulled off the market. Mm. because people were making decoder boxes. Mm. So a very useful, you know, hobbyist tool, hobbyist tool and component was no longer available because of subscription TV putting up a big stink and having Texas Instruments pull it off the market. Wow. Little side note there that's not really furry. But anyway... <laughs> But um, very geeky. Thank you, sir, from the electronics. Uh, what happened was that I hung out with uh, a gentleman named Mr. Peters, who was a science fiction fan and also a nerd. And he had a series of techie jobs, and one of them was he worked at a place called McCune Audiovisual, which was at had a little studio at the Disneyland Hotel, and they would do video things for conventions. And they also had a little studio where they would do interviews and things for events happening at the hotel. And it turned out that they also rented equipment out, and they also rented technicians to use the equipment. At the time, there was a home box office HBO clone 
that operated out of Newport Beach showed movies on cable TV, Mm. subscription channel, basically. Okay. And they had a dumb little show on Sunday morning called The Sunday Auction, (laughs) where they would have people give them products as a free promotion, and then they had a, a host, actually they had two hosts, a couple of comedians, who would sell the item on the air, starting with the a little more than retail price, and then lowering the price until somebody called in to buy it. Okay. So it was kind of a reverse auction. Interesting. And um, their little tiny studio they had at the Uplink, which is where the satellite dishes were in Newport Beach, only had one camera. And somebody on the production said, we have to, this has to be a two-camera shoot. It's not going to work with one camera. They didn't have a second camera. They didn't have a switcher. So they called up and got it from McCune Audiovisual. Right. Tim would throw the equipment in a vehicle. And eventually he said, hey, how about you and I go do this together? Bring your little Subaru pickup truck with the camper shell on the back. We'll throw the equipment in the back, drive over there, do the show together. Okay. So every Sunday, we would haul the equipment out to Newport Beach and do the show. This meant that I got to hang out at McCune. As a matter of fact, I even had an employee badge, which he got me, so I could get into the place if I needed to when he wasn't around. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of equipment there, including... A video editing system. (laughs) Now, this is nothing like editing nowadays. This is with tape. Yes. Actually, umatic. Yep. And we got to thinking, for my birthday, I think it was 1981 or so, but for my birthday, Nikolai Shapiro, whose name will come up or has come up before as the editor and uh, creator of The Other Sons, role-playing game. And one of the people who helped to get the world addicted to Skilltear. Yes. Which was a very, very furry role-playing game, science fiction role-playing game. Yes. Had Select TV, which was the subscription television system. Mm -hmm. And he recorded the feature, the Animal Olympics feature, and gave it to me for my birthday. Mm. So I got to see what the summer games looked like. Mm. Finally. And I got to meet Tatyana Toshinko, the Russian Sable. <laughs> <sighs> wow. Um, so we had this tape, which was a pretty good VHS copy off of Select TV. And Tim and I got to talking one day, sitting at McCute, and said, Hey, you've got a copy of the Winter Games, and we've got a copy of the feature. Why don't we separate them? Mm-hmm. So taking my really good off-the-air copy of the Winter Games and then taking the Summer Games and editing out all of the winter parts of the feature until just the Summer Games were left, Mm -hmm. we made what we called the CFO version of Animal Olympics. I should point out that you actually, in a few places, as I recall, had to insert some of your some, some repeated video because they had voiceover stuff that was important going on f- over some of the Winter Games stuff. So you had to excise out the Winter Games part and put in some Summer Games stuff while leaving the audio. Right. Which was amazing. Uh, you, you know, you could do it then. It's a lot easier now. And, mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that tape mm-hmm. became... 
essentially the Rocky Horror of furry fandom. Yes. It got showed at CFO meetings, furry conventions, copies went all over the country, and literally the tapes were played until they wore out. I think it's quite possible that more people have seen the split version you guys created than have actually seen the movie version, but that may be an exaggeration. Well, it eventually came out on VHS in one of those, you know, cheap family home video formats. With a terrible, terrible cover. And um, then recently, getting off the timeline here, Mr. Lisberger, of course, got to the point where he didn't like Animal Olympics much anymore. Yeah, the, the the way I've heard it said is that, he, unfortunately, instead of blaming NBC, he blamed the product for what happened to it. And he, you know, said, well, maybe if it was good, it wouldn't have happened or something like that, And which is sad because... Well, as it turns out, he moved to Germany, and the German animation fans, who are a bunch of really driven people, <laughs> started visiting him talking to him, emailing him, and convinced him, no, no, this was a great show. It was a standout. It was There was nothing else like it at the time. Certainly was not. And eventually he, got, he gave them permission to get a good 35 print and put it out as a DVD. Hmm. When this happened and we found out about it, Changa, my... Video Lion, mm-hmm. and I redid the CFO version from a really good copy cleaned up of my Winter Games and re-edited the feature from the German DVD and put together a really nice digital remastering. So from the CFO version, we went to the Prancing Skilltare version. Yeah, we still call it the CFO version. I know. <laughs> and we premiered that, I think, in 2014 mm-hmm. at Califer, and Mr. Fremer came out and talked about it and loved it with us. It was great. Mm-hmm. So that's um, kind of broke the timeline there. So we'll flip back on it. 79 became very interesting for me because we've talked a lot about furry origins mm-hmm. and furry inspiration. Mm-hmm. Lots of stuff about cartoons. Of course. Movies. Some books and stories. Mm-hmm. But there have always been furry things in science fiction and comic fandom. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for it. I was actively looking for it. I didn't even realize I was looking for it, but I was. And so... A bunch of things happened in 79. It was a very crowded year. I didn't realize everything happened in one year. <laughs> I went to Westercon 30. No, I'm sorry. Westercon 20. Oh, whatever. It was Westercon 1979. 1979 in San Francisco. And I was running one of my video rooms where I would take my V-Cord tapes and my V-Cord machines and I would run a screening room with video. It's just something I did. Right. And hanging out in the dealer's room, visiting uh, a table from a company called Tecutian Press, (laughs) which uh, was a fanzine and genzine publisher. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like uh, 
not like Apple's. This isn't you know limited production. This is a company that actually put out fan written publications with art, usually Xerox stapled or tape bound together. This is back in the days, folks, where you actually had fanfic on paper. On paper. So I was digging through a stack of their older stuff, and I found two things. I found two copies of a genzine from Canada published by some ladies in the Canadian Air Force mm-hmm. called Future Wings. Yep. And basically it's it was a bunch of really well-written fan fiction, kind of a lot of Mary Sue stuff, but it involved characters, original characters, and characters from the animated Star Trek. Which was unusual. You don't see a lot of Star Trek fanfic from the animated series. Including Mares and Eric. Mm-hmm. Eric's. And the avian people, which I think were from a Niven story originally. Actually, that I think, showed up. I think David Gerald wrote that one. I could be wrong. Yes, but the avian people oh. came from a Niven story, I'm pretty sure. Let's research this, folks, but we'll do that later. So the stories were really clever, fun, and sometimes erotic. Extremely erotic, yes. I also picked up a very interesting one-shot, kind of one-woman show collection of fan fiction called Snow on the Moon. Right. I picked it up because it had a beautiful illustration on the cover of this very exotic-looking wolf-like creature was kind of wolf-like, kind of cat-like, kind of (laughs) ape-like. But it was beautiful. It was very pretty Mm -hmm. with this kind of nebula and asteroids and planets in the background. Mm -hmm. And I just bought it because of the cover art. Mm -hmm. It was written by a lady named Angie Valenza. I think we actually talked about her in the last episode. Possibly. Yeah. Otherwise known as Fa Shimbo. Yes. From the character Faramar. Right. And her married name, Shimbo. Right. Basically, I got time later to read it, opened up the cover. First story was called The Snow on the Moon, Mm -hmm. which she described uh, as... I was wondering if I could write a story that an alien would find obscene. (laughs) Actually, that was a joke because it's a very wonderful, heartwarming story. Mm -hmm. So I picked it up. I opened the cover, flipped to the page, and it said, first line, there was snow on the moon for the holidays. (laughs) That story changed me. It Mm. basically was a turning point in my life because someone had written a story with important, animal-based, intelligent characters. Serious story. And I had not found anything like that before in amateur writing. Mm -hmm. You know, so the story was wonderful. Basically, it's about an alien uh, explorer. Mm-hmm. who gets stuck on a moon colony. And the alien is basically an up-evolved creature from another planet mm-hmm. 
uh, a silicon and carbon-based, dual-based life form that reproduces on a very long cycle Mm -hmm. that had been uplifted for the purpose of doing first contact for this strange, mysterious race. Three gendered uh, aliens, as I recall. three gendered. And what happens is because somebody messes with the dome climate on the moon and it starts snowing, it accidentally triggers the character's breeding cycle. Hmm. It's one of those things where there are so many chemical changes in the body and physiological changes that if they don't figure out how to handle it, the character could die. Hmm. So the community of college professors, scientists, students, and some of Earth's very own exploring automatons come together to help Fa the creature, they're called Satamari, mm-hmm. survive. And it's just a wonderful story. I still consider it one of the best science fiction stories I have ever encountered. It's not too long. It's character-based. And it is actually available, I think. Yes, it is. All of her writing from what's called the Washington Crater Chronicles is available on Amazon for the Kindle. Cool. And I highly recommend them. But because I picked up that fanzine, I got to thinking, hey, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having animal characters or animal-based characters, aliens, whatever, that look familiar as animals in serious fiction. Mm -hmm. And not just as sidekicks, Mm -hmm. not just as extra characters, but drive the story, Mm -hmm. actually make the plot happen. Right. In, you know, a very realistic and relatable way. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of other things happened in 1979. I went to the World Science Fiction Convention, which was held in Brighton, England. With Louise. With Louise Hitchcock, who may have mentioned last time you did was one of the cfo people and she was letting us use her house which was set up like a pub which is what gave me the idea for the prancing skilled hair cool and of course you going to over to england you're going to uh, absolutely 120 percent geek out on all of the fanish things that are associated with england yes and of course we're going to also go pub crawling exactly which we did all <laughs> over england <laughs> but you should tell them about you folks being the nice Canadian couple. Yes. <laughs> England is kind of it, the UK is kind of like a tourist attraction. <laughs> it's kind of like Disneyland with all of the people who live there being uh employees. The cast members, yes. And they really treat you nicely in most cases, but they're also very very used to tourists. And they know the times of year that tourists come to the UK. Mm -hmm. Americans come to the UK in the summer, you know, early summer, Mm -hmm. spring and summer. By the end of August, the Americans are gone. Mm -hmm. Worldcon happened in September. So there's Louise and I traveling around, and everyone's assuming we're married. They just automatically assume that. 
And since it's the wrong time of year, we're obviously Canadians. <laughs> so we finally just gave up and said, yes, we're that married couple from Canada that happened <laughs> to be in England. But um, really was a neat experience. Not a lot of furry things happened while I was over there. But one thing that was Spanish-related, which was kind of interesting, is Louise and I are big fans of the old Prisoner television show. Look it up. Starring Patrick McGowan, all about a guy who finds himself in this strange village he can't escape from and doesn't know why. He's an ex-spy. And it's very intriguing and very strange and very weird. And probably one of the best British summer replacement season shows ever put out. Tremendously surreal. Yes. It was filmed in a little place called Port Marion, which is a, a little uh, combination park, garden, and kind of architectural art display. Well, it's also a resort. Yeah. It's turned into a resort. It was originally a rich man's plaything. Oh, okay. Essentially. And um, didn't need to be a set. You just film there. Mm-hmm. It's already weird. Yes. And we'd been visiting there and stuff. So jokingly, we had a room party at Worldcon in Phoenix for Infocon. <laughs> uh, we called it that because a sort in, in the village, one of the things they're doing is they're basically trying to pick everybody's brain for some reason. They all want information. Mm-hmm. So Louise and I had a room party, and since we needed a theme, we said, okay, we're going to have a science fiction convention in 1984 (laughs) at Port Marion called Infocon. Mm -hmm. And this is a room party for a pre-bid for Infocon. Mm -hmm. It was all made up. It was just a joke. Mm-hmm. We made little badges with the ordinary bicycle, which was a symbol of the village from the show. And, you know, I made them for other people and walking around. We had posters set up, you know, we want information, Infocon, with the, yes, you know, be seeing you, which was one of the things that they said, because, of course, the whole place was surveillance cameras everywhere mm-hmm. in the story. So now we're in Brighton, England. And we want to have a room party. So we says, hey, why don't we make it the second Infocon bidding party? He said, sure. Dumb Americans, we didn't know much about prisoner fandom in England. It was a big thing. There were two separate fan groups formed about the same time. Uh, the Prisoners Appreciation Society and the Six for One mm-hmm. were the two groups. And over the years the two groups had developed a tremendous animosity. Or at least rivalry, yeah. Well, they, the, create, the, the, the leaders of the groups hated each other. Oh, dear. This was well known to people in England. Mm-hmm. Fans in England do this. We didn't, of course. So we're having our party, and it's going along swimmingly, and people are going, you know, if you need any help setting things out of Port Marion, just let, let us know. It's like, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> At one point, somebody comes over to me and says, look, over there, that's the head of Six for One. And I went, what? And he goes, oh, my God, 
the head of the Prisoners Appreciation Society just came in the room. I go, what do we do? He goes, I don't know, but uh, you might have to get the hotel staff up here. They're, they've been to fisticuffs before. <laughs> At some point, they noticed each other. And I told Louise, and we're going like, oh, God, what are we going to do? Two guys kind of walked up together, sized each other up, and turned to us, and they shook hands. And they said, if you Yanks can be trying to put together something like this, it's time we buried the hatchet. (laughs) The rest of the fans in the room were like, they didn't believe it. They could not believe it. It's like, we're going... Ah, okay. <laughs> I think that was the last Infocon party. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, oh and uh, I, I didn't uh, Harlan Ellison show up at one point and say, "I'll be your guest of honor." Uh, that was it. That was the first time. That was <laughs> at oh, okay. Phoenix. He, Harlan Ellison was the uh, guest of honor at Phoenix Worldcon. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make a point about the fact that the uh, equal rights vote hadn't been passed yet, mm-hmm. he refused to stay in the hotel. He had a, uh, he'd borrowed somebody's, you know, camper. Mm-hmm. He was parked in the parking lot. Right. Of course, he wasn't really staying in it, but it was all for show. Right. But he had a tent set up in the lobby as part of his protest where he had all of his signings. And we came up wearing our Infocom badges and he goes, that's great. That's a wonderful idea. If you want, I'll be your fan guest of honor. <laughs> So, yeah, you be careful what you joke about because Things you get never out of know hand. who's going to take it seriously. Things get out of hand, yes. But another thing happened in 1979, and that was I found out that Fashimbo had moved from New York City to Denver, Colorado. And there is a regional science fiction convention in Denver, Colorado called Mile High Con. Right. I was there. Because I wanted to meet her in person. Mm-hmm. She's a great person. I don't think she quite understood why, you know, why this crazy Californian was so into her writing. Mm-hmm. But she also was an artist, and she had beautiful art from her stories. Mm-hmm. She used a technique of sketching with ink on vellum and coloring it with something called Dr. Martin's dyes, mm-hmm. which are like little bottles of watercolor, very, very intense colored watercolors, mm-hmm. which gave the pieces this sign of trans, semi-transparent look. Right. She also did art on scratchboard. Right. People have ever seen scratchboard. It's basically a slick black card which you scratch away with a a sharp stylus to reveal the white underneath. Right. So it's like a negative image. Exactly. And she would do that and she would take her Dr. Martin's dyes and color the white parts. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd never seen either of these techniques anywhere before. Right. And the art was gorgeous. Yep. I had a lot of money. I went to the art auction and I bought everything. (laughs) Um, furry art, you know, what can I say? But yeah, that's, that was a very busy 1979 for me. It really was. And, uh, looking back, I have to say that 
her writing, her art, was a big inspiration for me because now I wanted to find more. I wanted to find more furry material. Didn't have the term then, but I wanted to find more material involving animal characters as main characters in serious or funny or comics or whatever. And after that, every convention I went to, and I went to a lot of them back then when I had money, I would go to the public to the publishing tables. I would go to the book to the used bookstores and say, "Do you have anything at all with animal-based characters in it?" And they'd look at you and go, "Say what?" <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> so, well, uh, one of the things leading up to '79, I don't remember the exact year of publication. It might have been '79. It might have been '78. But I was wandering around a Gemco. For those of you who remember that thing. Uh, <laughs> A membership store, folks, uh, back before they were quite so big of boxes. Um, but anyway, there was sitting on one of the front displays was a book that had just come out uh, called Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials. It was uh, uh, an artist by the name of Wayne Barlow who was uh, gunning to try to get a job illustrating covers for science fiction books. Back in the day, that was really a big thing and there was a lot of really cool artists who got their names uh, from illustrating the covers of science fiction books there was the brothers hildebrandt daryl k sweet michael whalen um you know, names like this if you look them up and one of the guys who was trying to do that was this young kid boy he was young uh named wayne barlow and uh, he got together with a publisher um at this one thing and and decided to do a portfolio of uh, stuff that he was working on, and they did the portfolio as kind of an encyclopedia of aliens from various and sundry books. And I found that, and my jaw dropped, and I begged my parents to get me that for Christmas, which they did. And that became my reading list from when I started reading science fiction. Uh, Everything that I started reading was was books from that collection. And uh, there are a lot of, if not animal-based, at least, you know, well, kind of animal-based on some some furries, some scalies and other things like that, and some just plain weird stuff. And, you know, Wayne's got his own style, so you can kind of, you know, figure out if you like it or not. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's very distinctive, and it certainly caught my eye. And so uh, I, I had already started a little bit on science fiction. I think I mentioned my friend uh, Robert, who had gotten me hooked on Edgar Rice Burroughs. So he would got me reading the Mars books and the Venus books and all of that. But I didn't really start solidly on just science fiction in general until I came across this book. And I started reading stuff in that. And that's when I first discovered Alan Dean Foster, because he had illustrations from a couple of his things. I, I read a book by... Arthur C. Clarke, Childhood's End. It's a great science fiction book, but my God, is it depressing. And then after that, I read a book by James Blish called A Case of Conscience, which is also a very good science fiction book, but even more depressing. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't think I like this stuff. It's horrible. Um, And then I read uh, Ice Rigger by Alan Dean Foster, which features his Tran. They're these... uh, uh, felines that live on this ice planet and they have 
fleshy wings connecting their wrists to their hips, and they have claws on the bottoms of their feet. So uh, on this windy ice planet, they go out on the ice and they spread their arms and they literally ice skate from place to place uh, is their whole shtick. And it's a wonderful series. And that I consider to be my saving in science fiction because I was like, that was like the third thing. And I was like, if this thing's depressing, I'm giving up on this. And it wasn't. It was great. And so, you know, Alan Dean Foster, thank you very much. That was my saving. And of course, hey, furries, you know. So uh, that got me going. So I was already thinking about science fiction. 1979, I started uh, high school in uh, Fountain Valley, California, as I said, Fountain Valley High School. And my first year was not a lot of fun, shall we say. Um, I think a lot of geeky nerds out there can identify probably with why. And in every way imaginable, I was a combination of a loud and annoying dork and a loud and whiny drama queen, which is just a marvelous combination if you want to get targeted, which I did. Um, I didn't want to get targeted, but I did get targeted. So uh, the first year was not something I went through. The first year was something I survived. The second year, uh, fall of 1980, I got smart and probably the smartest thing I ever did, I decided to start a science fiction club because I wanted, you know, as I said before, I wanted to have other people to geek out with about this stuff I was into. And uh, people started coming in and I started getting a group to hang with, uh, which was awesome because I didn't have anything like that the first year. And so we started, I I should backtrack a little bit. Um, The reason that I got the idea for starting a science fiction club was I had been started going to science fiction conventions. Initially, I think I mentioned this before, um, I I saw an announcement for science fiction conventions when uh, we was watching public TV uh, episodes of Doctor Who. And I saw an announcement for conventions, and I mentioned, hey, Mom, can I go to this? And my parents absolutely flipped out. They thought I was going to show up at this thing and come home, you know, with my head shaved and wearing a sheet, banging on a tambourine and asking for money at an airport or something. Um, They, you know, we don't know if we want you hanging out with those weird people and so forth. But eventually um, there was a convention uh, taking place in Hawthorne, California. And my dad, my stepdad, the uh, gentleman who my mom had found who would eventually become her second husband, worked at Mattel Toys of all places. So I, I talked him into letting me go along to this thing. And that was called, I believe, the Science Fiction Weekend. There was this uh, family in Southern California called the Crawfords who put on a series of conventions. I think one of them was called Fantasy Fair. Another one was called Science Fiction Weekend. And they had like three or four of them. And they bounced all over Southern California several times in uh, in Orange County, which was really helpful to me when I was starting to get into conventions you know, in the early 80s. So I'd been to a couple of those and, and absolutely fell in love. I met some authors, and I, I, I really loved them. That's when I first found out about the difference between sci-fi and SF. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, people don't remember that these days, but uh, the, the, the real high-quality, or, or to ask them, high-quality science fiction fans did not like the term sci-fi. To them, sci-fi is like... The Blob and uh, and Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and all of that, you know, late-night TV stuff. Real people who read books call it SF. Very important. Yeah, but of course, you know, the major person who caused that to shift. No. 
Forrest J. Ackerman. Yes. He liked the term sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Well, he popularized it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, good old Mr. Uh, famous Monsters of Filmland and such like that. So, well, he was one of the people who, uh, you know, kind of looked at the rift between people who liked schlocky alien science fiction movies and people who liked literary science fiction books and said, people, come on. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's like, let's all, why can't we all just... Get live a, together. Get yes, along. Right. Yes. Why can't we all just get along exactly and have some fun with this? So, yeah, thank you, Forey. But uh, so I started going to that, and I, 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 but I was hanging out by myself, which was not a lot of fun because I didn't know anybody there. I mean, I was, you know, watching everything with my jaws hanging open, but I didn't know anybody. So I wanted to get a group together. So I put out an announcement that we were starting a science fiction club, for, which it turns out was not the first. I found some old. Fountain Valley High School yearbooks, and there were actual science fiction clubs before I got there, but uh, uh, they they didn't last up to the point that I was there. So I started the current iteration, what was the current iteration in 1980, and we started, you know, going to some of these Crawford cons together and such, and I think this is the point where I should mention about the interesting shenanigans leading up to Lost Con 7, because initially, as I recall, you weren't going to be part of Lost Con 7. You were going to be part of Galacticon. Yeah, probably should mention a guy in Los Angeles wanted to have a science fiction convention. I forget his, what his name was right now, but he had a convention. Uh, it was basically just Friday, Saturday at a hotel in L.A. called, Galac- called Galacticon. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very great. I remember one of the interesting things I saw there was there was a, a, a lady who dressed up as Catgirl. Hmm. And uh, the interesting thing about her is she had natural almond eyes. Ooh. So it really worked well. <laughs> I mean, it was very simple, you know, black leotard with a little, little black skirt and, you know, form-fitting top. A feather, black feather boa for a tail, and little feathered ears on a headband, but it looked great. Mm-hmm. Probably have pictures of her somewhere because I took a lot of pictures. Uh, but the next year, it was apparently a success, and the guy got some backers. And the next year, he was going to have Galacticon. 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 Yeah. I'm sorry, I, there is another convention called Galacticon. Right. Which moves around the country, which is a gay science fiction convention. Sounds very similar. I keep stumbling over it. I'm sorry about that. No worries. At the Bonaventure Hotel. Now, people who don't know about Los Angeles or haven't watched science fiction <laughs> television shows or movies of that period, the Bonaventure Hotel is essentially five glass cylinders. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're about 30 stories tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a central large cylinder surrounded by four smaller cylinders that are connected together. Mm-hmm. And it looks very futuristic in a 1960s, 70s, 80s kind of futuristic way. Help, Jane, drop this crazy thing. So it is used a lot or was used a lot in television shows and movies mm-hmm. as a futuristic building. Right. I think even some shots inside. Uh, right. 
But, you know, they'd take basically take pictures of the building and then do a glass painting and paint everything else in the city out. Right. But it was like people thought, wow, this is the ultimate hotel to have a science fiction convention at. Mm-hmm. It's just perfect. Well, it turned out that the gentleman who was putting this together had some problems with the white powder stuff. Oh. A lot of problems. And when it came time to come up with the money to kind of finalize the deal, he didn't have it. Oh. So the contract went out the window, and people had been all hyped up to go to this. Now, it turned out that the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society, the LOSFIS, I think you actually had some LOSFIS kids in your science fiction club, right? We did. Children of people who were in the LOSFIS. Yep, second generation I was in the LOSFIS, too. They had a regional convention called LOSCON mm-hmm. every year. It was a convention for their club and other science fiction fans in the area. Right. It was not publicized like the Crawford Cons or the rival cons from... Doug Wright. Doug Wright, yeah who decided he was going to make money at conventions by making sure nobody else could have them. Right. Yeah, we could we could write a whole book on Doug Wright. He's an interesting character right. from Southern California fandom. A lot of people were really upset there was not going to be a Galacticon. And somehow, word got out that there was a science fiction convention that same weekend in Anaheim called LostCon. Mm-hmm. Now... The Losfus was, you know, you talk about sci-fi versus SF. <laughs> Losfus was kind of on the SF side of things. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, like the Grand Canyon is kind of a hole. Yeah, basically, my video rooms were the only television media that ever got shown in LostCon. I can throw in a little Bon Mott here of interest. Um, we had kind of a, a disagreement, a contest, a uh, uh, well, a contested thing in our uh, club because we couldn't afford to uh, go as a group because a lot of times we'd rent hotel rooms together because um, we were kids in high school. How could we afford in a hotel room? So we would get together and do them, but we couldn't afford to do Galacticon and LostCon. We couldn't split them up. So we had kind of a voting thing and like a campaign. Let's go to Galacticon. No, let's go to LostCon. Let's go to Galacticon. Let's go to... And LostCon eventually won... And then right after that, we found out I was actually kind of in charge of the Let's Go to Lost Con one because it was closer um, in Anaheim and we were in Fountain Valley. And uh, eventually we won. And shortly thereafter, we found out that Galacticon had been canceled. So we were all kind of. Well, it was very interesting because the Lostfus did not expect people to show up in that amount. <laughs> oh, yeah. Suddenly, there were lines out the front of the hotel for reg- for one day and, and two day registrations, and they're going like, "Where did these people come from?" But, you know, I guess they cried all the way to the bank. Yep, uh, the the Losfus is normally held at various um, or pardon me, Loscon is normally held at various uh, Los Angeles locations. For whatever reason, this particular one they happened to hold in Anaheim at a hotel, literally one block north of Disneyland. Yeah, the Sheraton. The Sheraton, which is all done up in this uh, medieval style, and it was an awesomely weird hotel to have a convention at. We used to have these things called runs, 
which was a sort of a LARP thing, a sort of a laser tag thing before it was there was such a thing as laser tag, where literally we would just run around hotel hallways with, you know, toy guns and go bang at each other and zap zap and so on and so forth and make points. And the the hallways were such a complete maze that it was wonderful. I bet uh, the hotel loved that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> by about the mid-'80s, let's say they weren't a part of conventions anymore. But, um, yeah, no, we, uh, we, we, we had a boatload of fun with that. And I got my first uh, Star Trek wedding there they had in the middle uh, courtyard, you know, surrounded by all of this medieval finery and everything, and it was, it was totally awesome. I saw one of my first costume contests there. And that's the one where, uh, you know, little stories, uh, there was a lady who was playing Luke Skywalker being trained by Yoda, and she was a ventriloquist. So she had, you know, this Yoda puppet. And uh, she was going to, she was supposed to do this thing, you know, you know she, she walks out and says, uh, and, and then Yoda says, you know, levitate the audience, you must. You know, and she was going to do this thing where she concentrates and then levitates him and uh, then he was going to yell at her. Well, what happened was he says, levitate the audience, you must. And then she, she starts concentrating and some guy in the audience stood up. And then another guy stood up. And then another yeah, guy. The whole audience the whole stood, audience up. stood like, up. Just amazed her. <laughs> it was great. Interestingly enough, I was running video rooms at LostCon. I'd started at LostCon 2 with my friends Betamax and, a, and the hotel television running science fiction shows, mainly Doctor Who, and comedy shows like Quark, which people probably don't remember. It was a science fiction comedy show, half-hour show. Done by the same people who brought us Get Smart. Yeah. And The Prisoner, Mm -hmm. episodes of The Prisoner. And a incredibly bad, barely watchable, hardly audible bootleg of Star Wars. Oh, okay. Which I ran after hours. Hmm. Um, but anyway, I'd paid for the room myself. It wasn't on the hotel. It wasn't on the convention program. Hmm. The convention didn't like it because it was TV stuff. But by LostCon 7, which was 1980, in Anaheim at the Sheraton. In November. I had worn them down to the point where, yeah, they wanted to see prisoner episodes. So, yeah, I'll show other things too. Maybe. So I had an official video room with a schedule and everything. Mm-hmm. Also at the time, I had been making my skill tear critters more mm-hmm. popular mm-hmm. by doing little greeting cards for people. Ah, uh, yes, all mark cards. All mark cards. When you care enough to send a furry beast, yes. Exactly. And I had drawn some, uh, did some art of skill tear, basically pencil, ink pencil drawings with colored pencil. And uh, so my friend said, you should put them in the art show. Yes. Uh, the Lost Con 7 was the first uh, I mentioned about all the Crawford Cons I had been to. The Crawford Cons were almost exclusively media-oriented. I remember my first one was in 1980 specifically because uh, the first Crawford Con I went to, uh, they were really plugging Clash of the Titans. That was the big movie coming out that summer. But one of the things about the Crawford Cons is that they did not have art shows. Um, when I went to Lost Con 7, that was the first convention I had ever been to with an art show. Yeah, art shows were a big thing in the SF group of conventions, as opposed to the sci-fi media conventions. Right. So I put some of my skill tear art 
in the art show. And therein lies a tale. <laughs> Several tales, actually, yes. Well, uh, I should back up a little bit and say well, one of the other books that I discovered, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the author now. Um, I meant to look this up, but there's a book called Fur and Fury, which is a... Uh, That's not a science fiction book. No, it's not, but it's a natural history book about the family Mustelidae. Uh, it's written by a guy who's loudly and proudly a fur trapper, so he goes into some stuff about each of the animals that, let's say, I'm not really thrilled to read about. But what was awesome about this book was that it was a complete guide to just about every member of the family Mustelidae. Uh, so I had never heard of half of these things. I mean, I had already, as I explained before, thanks to Beaver Valley and things like that, I'd fallen in love with otters and skunks and weasels themselves, but I had never heard of a marten. I had never heard of a fisher. I had never heard of a zoril or a ratel and all of these things. And this book had a section on each of them. It was the first time I ever saw a picture of a marten. It's a wonderful picture. That same book was my... In, in high school, was my gateway into the weasel family. Exactly. The picture of the Martin in there is just wonderful because he's just looking up from a from a branch. He's looking up at the camera, and he looks like he's grinning. Okay, it's wonderful. So I fell in love with this book, and so um, and I told everybody about it. You know, uh, you know who who would sit and listen to me. You know, Dorky Rodney and, and his and his weasel obsession. Um, so you know they put up with it a bit more in my. Uh, in my science fiction club, I say a bit. So I'm wandering around Lost Con. I'm looking through the art show. And my friend, one of my friends from the club, taps me on the shoulder and says, Rodney, there's some stuff here I think you should look at. And I walk around the corner, and here are these alien space weasels with antenna. And basically I said, my God, those are alien space weasels with antenna. And so I, I, I forget what exactly I did, but I looked at the, the, the artist's name and realized, some, well, I, I asked, no, I remember now, I asked somebody at the art show staff, who is this artist? And they said, oh, he's the guy who's running our video program. So I immediately went and tootled over to the video program, figured out who it was, saw the nameplate, and a lot of people had been walking up to sigh and saying, uh, oh, what cute cats you draw. You know, what do they know? Yeah. And I walk up to him and I say, is that your art in the art show? Well, yes, it is. Why do your Martins have antenna? <laughs> I said, oh, hmm, maybe you should sit down. I'll explain it to you. <laughs> I don't. I'll be flat honest, people. I don't know if I fell in love with the guy at first sight, but I noticed him. Uh, this uh, geeky fan who's running a video room at a science fiction convention. He looks like Sonny Bono. Uh, he's got that haircut and he's got that, uh, that mustache and he's 27 years old. And he's like suddenly everything I ever wanted to be fanishly other than a published author. <laughs> so... I did sit down and start picking his brains immediately. And one of the first things I asked you about was, oh, you, so you run all this Japanese animation stuff? Do, do you have any Amazing 3? 
We got it eventually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and started talking about Kimba. And so uh, we went out to lunch at the, the, around the corner from uh, the Sheraton. They used to have, where they now have an oh-so-exciting uh, AMPM. Uh, they used to have that diner that was made out of a, out of a, a rail car. Yeah. Was that part of the spaghetti station or not? No, no, no. It was on the opposite side of the hotel okay. from the spaghetti station. Oh, yeah, I remember station. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, the spaghetti station we didn't go to till later, but, uh, yeah, I was really happy with that, too. But, yeah, so I um, was, you know, absolutely flabbergasted uh, running into this guy who, you know, my God, another weasel person and somebody who's into animation that uh, I'm into and so on and so forth. And so... Let's just say I puppy dogged. One time I called you up from my house after my parents had gone to sleep and kind of chatted your ear off until about 2.30 in the morning until you were begging for mercy. <laughs> yeah, actually, that I was thinking, holy cow, somebody else who's into weasels. Whoa, and knows that there's more kinds. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was that was great. And, of course, he later found out that I had started CFO with some friends, and he came to the meetings, the local meetings. Which used to be, back in the day, banks used to have these rooms that they would let out for community groups, and uh, at the time, we managed to convince them, you managed to convince them that the CFO was a community group. Yeah, well, essentially, there was a, you know, there was still things happening in Los Angeles, and I thought, you know, there's enough fan base in Orange County that we really should have a CFO down here. And they had been using, well, originally they used the Animators Union Guild, which was great, but it was really far. It was like almost in the valley. Uh, so it was really far from Orange County. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Louise's house, which was more centrally located, and then eventually Studio A, which was the dance studio in Inglewood, right. which became kind of our base of operations for years. Right. But uh, here at this point, you know, that was 1977, 78, mm-hmm. uh, Now it's 1980, and we started thinking about having an Orange County chapter. Right, right. That was and a new I thing. And I went around and discovered there were these community rooms available, and they'd give you a key to the room, and you just showed up and did your thing and cleaned up after yourself, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Didn't even cost anything. So we had an Orange County CFO, which moved kind of like from bank to bank to bank because some of the banks went out of business, closed, got turned into restaurants or got torn down, or another bank took over that didn't have didn't use the community room anymore, and, you know, it's that kind of thing. Yep. So We had a couple of times, I remember, where uh, we tried having a CFO at some people's houses and discovered that, uh, hmm, let's just say, some of the anime fans weren't the greatest at cleaning house. Yeah. Including the, the the lady who had about 75 cats, and you walked in, and it was basically like you were hit in the face with a, with a brick. So we, we, we tr- that, 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 that CFO meeting lasted about an hour before we gave up and ran away. But, uh, yeah, so I started hitting the CFOs regularly, and all, very shortly after that, we started going out to conventions together and all of that. And, and I think I even went to your science fiction club at... At the high school. 
Yes, and yes. put on a presentation on something. Yeah, well, on anime. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I I, I brought you in to uh, yap it up about about the the science fiction about uh, yeah. I brought you in to uh, yap it up about anime and uh, the the CFO and what it did and all of that, which you know, I've always been trying to get the various far-flung parts of my life brought together and that was another attempt to do that so I tried to get my guys all into anime which some of them it worked and some of them it didn't but uh yeah so that was tons of fun and you know yeah I started coming to some of my uh, high school events and things like that because I was in choir so I was thing- singing and things I was in the theater of course you know what the heck what what what, what geeky uh drama queen isn't into theater um so I appeared in some plays and Mark would come along I actually came along and videotaped Yes. Some of them. Um, so, so I think some of them I've still got. Yeah, I started out audio taping musicals at Garden Grove High School mm-hmm. with my friend Bill Elder. Oh. You know, if we ever did a, you know, pod, a, a netcast on, you know, my audiophile background, that would be another, you know, <laughs> hundreds of hours of... <laughs> I'm actually trying to write a book about my experiences as an audiophile. You should. You should. Well, I've, I've started it, you know, from from a toddler who used to stand up on his parents' bed and play 78s at 6 o'clock in the morning to actually creating a loudspeaker design with two patents and producing it two different times for sale to general public. Yeah, that's so now we've gotten to the point where I actually met Rodney. And sometime round about then, right before you met me, you had, well, two things. Um, you had uh, uh, your relationship with Louise had come to an end, and you had uh, met up with another lady. And yeah. you were living in an apartment. You weren't living in your parents' house anymore. Right. But uh, eventually your apartment complex became a little bit of a fanish haven. There was a little, like, little fanish commune. There were three other people who had apartments there that... Uh, were fans mm-hmm. that I basically, you know, hey, there's an apartment open. Mm-hmm. So I started attending parties that you had there. Yeah. Uh, usually at your place, and uh, there were lots of, you know, animation screenings and stuff like that. Yeah. One thing we should probably mention, another parallel thing, is uh, 1979. I did somehow fi- find time to have a weekend that is two day Saturday and Sunday party mm-hmm. at my parents' house. Mm-hmm. It's a general science fiction fan party. You know, they weren't out of town. I wasn't, like, sneaking. It was all with permission. And a lot of people showed up. But that was when I created the Prancing Skill Tear. Oh, right. It was, like, weeks before I thought, you know, Louise had her pub house, her, her house with the pub family room. And this is going to be, the house is going to be like a public house for a weekend. We have our big family room. We have all the rooms of the house. You know, I had set up some primitive video games in one room. We were watching movies in the front room, and I had movies playing in the family room on the big screen TV, and people were filking and playing pool and filking on the front lawn. It was a big—it was like people called it Merlinocon 1. <laughs> but before that all happened, I got this idea— I was going to make my house into a UK-style public house for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I had to have a pub sign. Right. So I went out to the lumber yard and I got a couple of decorative, heavy Spanish shelves. Heavy Spanish furniture was all the rage then. Right. 
And uh, by putting the two shelves back to back together, it turned into a really nice placard with kind of a filigreed edge on it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, what am I going to call this thing? And I thought, okay, well, at the Prancing Pony in The Hobbit, actually, I think Lord it was of Lord of the Rings. Rings. And I got my skill tear. How about the prancing skill tear? And I ended up drawing a picture of Linda's skill tear aura and my skill tear Psy back to back dancing with their tails entwined, you know, on the sign. Painted both sides of it, you know, with uh, enamel lacquer and, and did old English letter, prancing skill tear lettering. And I hung it from the eaves of the house and got a couple of clip-on lights to light it so it would show up at night. And that became the Prancing Skill Tear Party. And after the party was over, I took the sign down. I had it in my garage for a while, and I thought, hey, when I moved in my apartment, my apartment had, I was on the ground floor, and there was a, a little wooden balcony from the apartment upstairs. So there was this beam sticking out right above my door, and I hung the sign there. And at first, the apartment manager, who was a real, he was a real bipolar type. He would just, he would be so nice one day and a real pain the next. Right. Complained about it. And I says, why can't I have this hanging there when everybody's got their hanging plants and wind chimes everywhere else? And he just shut up and walked away. <laughs> so that, that was the Prancing Skill Tear residence, my apartment, before I bought my house. I still have that sign. It unfortunately deteriorated a lot. But the wood's still good, so one of these days when I've got nothing to do, I don't know when that's going to be, I'm going to repaint it and rehang it on the beam that's sticking out from the front of the house, even though we have our lighted sign. Which has become world famous. On the, palm, uh, on the dead palm tree stump. Well, um... So here we are right at the start of the 1980s, and all of a sudden we are this furry-finding team. And fandom is about to explode. We're already in the backwash of the uh, stuff which came about because of Star Wars and all of that. And a lot is going to happen in the 1980s, and it's going to come very quickly. But we're going to need to get some help here. so hopefully uh, on our next episode or in a very shortly in our upcoming episodes, we're going to start talking directly to some of the people uh, from other parts of the country who were instrumental in getting things, both the, the uh, furry artwork, furry stories, and uh, the organization of furry fandom itself uh, going because we started in the 80s. We started coming fast and quick to... Uh, a lot of this stuff. But for now, um, we're going to uh, wrap things up and we will say on October 19th, 2016, from the Prancing Skilter in Garden Grove, California, I am Rod O'Reilly. And I'm Mark Merlino. And one more time from TOFF, TTFN. <laughs>